Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the non-living dead films of George Romero, as recommended by Ali Croper of BitLip, a teen movie podcast, and in this week's episode, I'll be wrapping up May and Romero with his 1990 film, Two Evil Eyes. But before I get into the episode, a little bit of housekeeping, I guess. Um, This is going to be the last episode for a couple of weeks. Um, The next two weeks, I will be out on vacation uh, along the West Coast, um, making various stops, San Diego, Burbank, uh, and Oakland, California. So I'm not going to be doing anything, obviously, uh, but uh, there is there, I do have a plan for June, um, and so I just wanted to pray there's not going to be anything for the next two weeks, but when I come back, um, there is going to be a new guest, a new theme, and I can tell you right now that uh, the guest is David Bax, and the theme is, um, I guess we could say, sort of advanced mumblecore. Um, if you recall, uh, I, I may have mentioned it on Facebook that David and I made a bet uh, around hockey, specifically the Las Vegas Golden Knights, as to whether or not, well, I, I guess as to what degree of success they would have um, in this past NHL season. He predicted that they would get back to, I believe, the Western Conference Finals. I predicted they wouldn't even get into the playoffs. And uh, the stakes were, if I won... He was going to buy me any Criterion Blu-ray title of my choosing, and if uh, he won, or I guess it was more specifically if I lost, then uh, he was going to come back on the show and talk about Mumblecore, which was a theme-slash-genre of which I was not enthusiastic in any way, shape, or form. Now, the Las Vegas Golden Knights did not make it to the Western Conference Finals, but they did indeed make it to the playoffs, so I am a loser. Uh... As my high school guidance counselor once frequently told me, so I will uh, I will be talking to him about advanced mumblecore. So, going to be a little bit of radio silence for two weeks, but at least you know um, what I will be coming back to, and what you will be coming back to, and what you can expect. So, let's get into wrapping up Romero with Two Evil Eyes, and I'm just going to say it right off the bat: Two Evil Eyes isn't very good. Um, once again, I also would like to remind you, I'm only reviewing the Romero half of this quote-unquote anthology film. It was two adaptations of two Edgar Allan Poe short stories, um, one done by George Romero and one done by his uh, Italian contemporary Dario Argento. I'm only reviewing uh, the one that the half that Romero did, which was an adaptation of Poe's The Facts in the Case of M. Uh, Valdemar. Now... I was prepared to like this movie because I, I had seen it before. It, it's been since college, so it was, it, it's been a while, but I recall kind of liking it, and I certainly was sort of poised to enjoy it because not just have I generally enjoyed and appreciated what Romero has been doing with the films this, this month, but also there's some kind of bit players in this film that are sort of veteran genre regulars or Romero regulars, so there's sort of all the pieces were kind of in play, and I... 
love Edgar Allan Poe. I have the, the you know his uh, his entire collection uh, over there on, on the bookcase. And actually, after I got done watching this movie, I reread uh, the the story to just kind of see how things synced up or, or what was different, what the uh, artistic interpretation came into play. Um, so there was a lot of elements in there that seemed like I was poised to kind of if not really like this, and at least kind of appreciate and enjoy it. And I have to say, I didn't like it. Um, it's not that I didn't appreciate it, but I just felt it was very lacking, and certainly um, it, it wasn't as bonkers as Monkey Shines was. It certainly didn't have a, a, a as engaging of a kind of progressive message that Season of the Witch did. This was just kind of plain and regular and kind of uninspired. Um, but in terms of those veterans that were kind of part of this, um, Adrian Barbeau uh, plays Jessica. She's the lead. You may, you know, obviously she was in John Carpenter's The Fog um, and, and John Carpenter's Escape from New York as well. I mean, you know, genre fans know her. Um, the guy that plays um, Mr. Valdemar, the old guy that they're trying to con from their money, he's an actor named Bingo O'Malley, which is not a made-up name. Somehow that's a, a real person. Um, but he was in uh, George Romero's Night Riders, and then he was also in Creepshow. Um, Tom Savini, regular Tom Savini, did the makeup effects for this, just like he did for, um, you know, Dawn of the Dead and, and Day of the Dead. And then Christine Forrest, who at the time was Romero's wife, once again makes an appearance in this film. And uh, as she did in Monkey Shine, she once again is playing an angry nurse, uh, which leads me to believe that, or not lead me to believe, but leads me to to speculate how fun it would be if this was actually um, a shared cinematic universe, uh, connected, of course, by Christine Forrest. Um, but so there was all these pieces that seemed to line up to kind of uh, equate to me enjoying this movie, but I I didn't. There's really nothing engaging about it. There's there's really no kind of um, inspiration to the direction and what he brings to the story or at least what he kind of tries to bring to the story that wasn't inherent in the source material is not really entirely effective in regards to the story that he is trying to tell, the film he is trying to make. Um, now, in Season of the Witch and Monkey Shines, you recall that I talked about how the themes that he seemed to be setting up and introducing and really exploring was his idea of dehumanization and what it means to be a human. Um, in Season of the Witch, you had a um, a woman lead who was uh, obviously a human, but sort of what forces were acting around her to sort of suppress her, oppress her, and kind of keep her subjugated and, and less than human. And in Monkey Shines, you obviously had this question as to, um, was this animal just as human as this person who seemed to be devolving, at least in terms of emotionally, as the monkey got smarter? And there sort of was this kind of seesaw effect of and making us question whether it was effectively or not, but there still was that subtext of what is, what, what does it mean to be human? Um, and there seems to be a thread of that in this movie, at least when it comes to the dehumanizing or corrupting influence or force of money, but it's not well fleshed out, it's uh, not clear, and instead what we just kind of get is a not very effective, scary short, basically, in which there are some kind of cool gore effects. It's certainly not the best work that Tom Savini has ever done or will ever do. Um, but it's just kind of the, the, this short story which lacks any kind of real emotional connection or resonance, uh, which doesn't really have any kind of profundity when it comes to themes or that it's trying to explore. And also it's just, it's not scary. And I don't say this through the lens of someone who's watching a 1990 film from 2019. I say this more as even in 1990, I can't imagine anyone kind of watching this and being 
scared or feeling tense or even put off by the gore effects. It just kind of is very stale and plain in in, in a lot of ways. Um, I, you know, and I don't like doing this. I don't like when people do this in the sense of uh, kind of trying to compare a an adaptation to its source material and saying that one is superior and one is inferior. I say this obviously, you know, just a, a few days after the Game of Thrones uh, finale has uh, aired and everyone is just kind of so enraged and infuriated, myself included, and just kind of trying to take solace in the fact that, well, at least we have the source material still and just the, the inability so close to the this event that, you know, there, there's kind of a difficulty kind of separating the two and, and seeing what one does better than the other, basically. But fundamentally, I think at the core, it's not even that they're two very different pieces. I mean, they are two very different pieces, the short story and the film adaptation, but it just, he brings something to the film that wasn't inherent in the story, and I don't think it entirely works. Um, as I said, I sort of reread the short after I was done watching the movie, and it's just, there's only so much potency and, and power that's in the short, or that's in the, the, the short story, because it's only eight pages long. Um, it's, it's not even sort of a straight up horror. There's almost kind of, it's like it's sort of a gothic suspenseful almost kind of body horror in a way because what they seem to be exploring in the Poe short story is more um dealing with the consequences of this hypnotic experimentation and delaying death. It's it's more kind of exploring the, the how that is, you know how those consequences affect Voldemort himself and I apologize if people keep thinking that I keep that I'm continuously saying Voldemort as in the Harry Potter villain I am not uh, maybe Valdemar if I just kind of mispronounce it at least there's some separation but the short story kind of deals more with the consequences on him in regards to the the putrescence and just kind of the exaggerated pain um, physical physical pain that this man is experiencing when he is kind of not allowed to die because he's stuck in this kind of um, purgatory, hypnotic state, and as soon as he is woken up at the end, his body kind of immediately sort of decays and rots, and, and the, the physical act of death actually catches up to him. Whereas in the film, it's more this experimentation, what they're doing, what effects it has on Jessica and Robert, and specifically on Jessica and Robert as getting their comeuppance for fiddling with forces they should not be fiddling with, basically. Um, it is a very short, simple story, uh, you know, at least um, in the film. It's There's this old, crotchety, rich man whose uh, wife is due to get all sorts of inheritance uh, once he dies, and so she is in cahoots and having this affair with this doctor who is instead kind of experimenting with hypnotism on this, uh, on this old man. Um, and he finds out, uh, or they both find out that after he's passed away, that because he was stuck in this hypnotic state, his soul or his essence is not able to move on. And um, in the short story, it's very much just kind of this horrifying look in the sense of like, let me die, let me die, please, this is horrible. I, this, you know, there, there's the implication of like, this is not how existence is supposed to be like. You are, you know, you're, 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 you are not sure what you are doing, so please don't do this to me. Whereas in the film, obviously the, the tweak that Romero made is by him not being able to move on by Valdemar, not being able to, to pass on, if you will, to enter into the light. It, he his soul is sort of acting as this vessel for these evil forces, which are trying to come into this world, which 
on on the on the surface is sort of interesting, but because of a uh, runtime and sort of um, Romero's lack of flair when it comes to direction, it it doesn't really hit very strongly, and and there's there's not much of a narrative resonance when it comes to that. Um, and and now because it is a short form, because we only do have like an hour with this. Romero kind of has to compensate by sort of making it soap operatic, basically. Um, the you know the the Jessica and and Robert are kind of over the top, um, kind of over the top evil, if you will, because we kind of have to catch up right away and kind of figure out what what's what are the stakes, what are their motivations, what's going on here, um, because as the film starts, Valdemar is already kind of on death's door, and we kind of have to know that these are the schemers as they twiddle their figurative mustaches and just kind of let us know, like, okay, they're bad people, and what they're doing is a bad bad thing um and neither of which i have to say are, are particularly great actors uh maybe the the hardcore genre fans might chastise me for chastising um adrian barbeau but neither of them are really quite spectacular so they kind of have to compensate by sort of making them exaggerated over the top sort of characters um but then there's also this problem of well then who am I rooting for? What's my emotional investment or engagement or entryway into the story? I don't really have one. You're just kind of basically, I, I guess it's Schadenfreude uh, that you're supposed to be taking away from this, or it's supposed to be sort of um, a desire to see people get their comeuppance. That's that's what's supposed to keep us uh, invested in the story, which is not really um, a, a great reason to stay invested in the story. I mean, I, I, I'm reminded of a conversation I was having with um, someone the other day when I was talking about my main problem with uh, season one of American Horror Story, which I, you know, is years old at this point. Uh, but everyone just seemed not just so despicable as characters, but they all hated each other so much that it's like, who am I rooting for here when if they don't care about anything, what am I supposed to be caring about? When the things that these characters are caring about is money, is the finances, is the fortune that they're hoping to inherit uh, from this old dead man. Um, and like I said, I, I think it's that money, that element that Romero introduces, which is supposed to kind of fit into this pattern that he had been developing as a as a progressive person as a filmmaker who was concerned with how he could use his craft to sort of comment on what is ailing society and specifically as i said at the top of the episode what is dehumanizing people and what kind of makes us less civilized uh, it seems to be money which obviously um it's 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 valdemar's fortune which is not an element that's in the original short story so this is something that he introduced intentionally because he wanted that to be special he wanted that to be a focus he wanted that to be a new element and um it's not just that but it's also you do have this kind of on the nose shot at the very end of the film when the police officer finds the uh the reanimated um, corpse of uh, Robert, who says he can't move on, he can't die now, um, when there's just blood dripping on uh, these dollar bills in close-up. It's just very on the nose, and I suppose that you could say that instead that's actually supposed to be acting as a transition into the second half, into Dario Argento's half, because it also, you know, the film is called Two Evil Eyes, and the specific shot is focused on the you know, the single eye in, the, in the, the pyramid that's on the back of those dollar bills. So maybe you could say that that's just supposed to be a, an, an aesthetic stylistic thing to kind of transition into the the aforementioned second evil eye, if you will. Um, 
but to me, it just it, it started. It, it just kind of was supposed to act as sort of a um, a period, if you will, on the sentence of what he's kind of talking about on his thesis of money and and the love of it and the pursuit of it is what corrupts people and makes them less uh, than they actually are. Um, and if that's the case, uh, I mean, I guess cool, but it, it's not it's not fleshed out very well. There's there's is there's not really a a, a focus and, and 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 you know it's not something that's really returned to it just it is very short like i said it's a it's a it's an hour-long film so you know he only has so much time to work on and so he kind of has to exaggerate and he sort of has to um hammer home on those points you know quickly and he sort of has to make the you know and that's why things are very kind of over the top and over dramatic and it's it's uh it's clear but it's not effective per se um the only really thing that i thought was admirable or something that's sort of like oh you know kind of made me sit up on my seat a little bit was there's a um a, a shot i guess like it's not even part it's not even halfway through the movie i'd say it's maybe even kind of like a third of the way into the movie in which um shortly after uh valdemar has died and they're kind of trying to figure out like well what do we do now because we have to we you know we had to wait for a couple weeks for him to hang on so that you know some account could clear so we could get his money and so we have to kind of fake that he's still alive for a couple of weeks. What are we supposed to be doing? And this conversation is taking place in a pool outside. And it's really kind of interesting because the camera is positioned, um, <clears throat> or at least the, the actors are positioned in such a way where Adrian Barbeau is on one side of the pool. Um, the other actors on the other side of the pool in the foreground. And, and the, the camera kind of dollies um, to the left as we kind of follow them walking down the pool, kind of discussing it. And then eventually they get to the end of the pool where, you know, and, and then they, they kind of cross paths, if you will, and then, and then they continue walking back in the other direction. But this time Barbeau is in the foreground and the other actors in the background. And thematically it sort of signals kind of this shift uh, because after that, that's when the haunted noises from the, the dead or, you know, sleeping Valdemar start turning in or, or, or start coming into the film. And that's also where... Um, uh, Jessica's character also her intentions kind of turn as well or at least her approach to the scheme that they're doing that kind of turns as well because before that she did seem sort of like I don't know I feel kind of dirty about doing this whole thing and, and the and you know Robert is sort of the the sniveling or, or, or the conniving one that's like yeah hey, don't worry about it you know we're going to be so rich and, and he's he's kind of set up as the bad guy and then after that conversation which they cross paths um, quite physically and 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 uh and visually, there's a bit of a turn where Robert becomes a little bit more curious as to what is going on with this body that is supposedly dead and yet being able to communicate. And he kind of gets almost, uh, he maybe even starts caring a little bit because of these messages that he's getting from beyond the grave about these other dark forces here and how it's cold and, and you know, and, and he can't and he can't pass on. Um, whereas Adrian Barbeau and, and, you know, and Jessica is very much kind of more intent on let's get this over with and she's the one that ends up you know shooting the corpse in the head a bunch of times and uh and trying to kill him she becomes very much like i can't stand this shit anymore so there's an emotional kind of shift and there's almost kind of a tonal shift in which that's when the horror kind of starts coming into play it's just not very effective horror if you will um and so and then it, you know it, it sort of uh, ends with like i said robert's reanimated corpse which is very cool looking and, and harkens back to uh romero's uh, zombies in his living dead films but it's just it's kind of a 
it's kind of a very tepid story and um and maybe it was supposed to be more i know that there was um romero's intentions for this was originally to kind of have like uh even more filmmakers involved i believe wes craven he wanted to have involved um and he wanted someone else and he kind of wanted to make this uh he, he wanted to start a pilot and he wanted to have this tv show which adapted a lot of poe short stories and it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, the facts in the case of, of M. Valdemar that he wanted to adapt. What he actually wanted to do was um, an adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not The Fall of the House of Usher. Um, Mask of the Red Death. And that was going to be... Or maybe it was The Fall of the House of Usher. I'm sorry that I'm... Uh, that you are very clearly seeing right now that I, I did not do all of my research, but it was either Fall of the House of Usher or The Mask of the Red Death that he wanted to adapt, and he wanted it to be an allegory about... AIDS, basically, which sounds like it could have been very interesting. Um, and now that I'm uh, said that, I'm also reminded of allegory being an introduction to something that I'm sure Poe would not have approved of because Poe is not the biggest fan of allegory either. So, um, just another uh, exhibit in this case against this film, which tried to take source material and add something to it that wasn't inherently there, and maybe that's sort of actually um, the problem or, or one of the problems, if you will, um, about this piece. So. Um, it would have been interesting to see a, a, a Poe um, TV show, and especially with uh, with Romero's take on uh, the AIDS epidemic in America at the time. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not what we get. Unfortunately, what we do have instead is Two Evil Eyes, which is a fairly uninspired kind of anthology film to um, close out May and George Romero months. So if uh, if you are curious to rewatch it, then it is uh, free on, on um, uh, Amazon Prime Video. Um it is free on Vudu with ads if you are, are fine with sitting through those. Um, it's free on Tubi, which is an, honestly a service I have never heard of before or have heard of infrequently, so I couldn't tell you anything about it. But also free on Canopy and if you have an Epix subscription. Uh, if you want to rent it or buy it, it's also available on Amazon. If you don't have a Prime membership, you can rent or buy it there. Rent or buy on YouTube and uh, Google Play as well. So um, that does it for May. That does it for George Romero. I hope that you have enjoyed this. I was uh, I was checking in on, on the, the comments on the Monkey Shines episode on BattleshipRetention.com today and saw that um, my longtime listener and critic and friend, I suppose, um, Fiction Isn't Real, uh, chimed in on the Monkey Shines episode to say that it was a little bit strange that I was doing films that he said he or she said was not indicative of uh, the trademark, you know, kind of the, the, the most indicative work of uh, Romero, in which I, it kind of maybe occurred to me, maybe I wasn't as clear as I could have been at the outset of this uh, month and with the introductory episode that what I was doing was, obviously, George Romero is a filmmaker who is known for the Living Dead films, um, from Night of the Living Dead all the way up through for uh, Survival of the Dead. Um, but, uh, even though he was King of the Zombies and, and seemed to be a guy who was quite proud of that, that wasn't all that he was. And so I wanted to explore what else it, what else this guy was made of, like what else was interesting to him. And when he wasn't making a, a, a living dead film, what were his trademarks? What were the things that were important to him? What, what makes a George Romero film? Because um, those things are going to be clear and come across even if we're not dealing with people kind of trapped in a basement and trying to fight off the living dead. Um 
so if that was not clear, I, I apologize. But uh, if you've been listening for this far, then clearly you are not bothered by that. But um, just wanted to, to address that anyway. So um, I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. I hope that you've enjoyed this month. Um, if you did or if you didn't, either way, it's easy enough to get in touch with me. Please drop me a line at badly at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at NolanFixesTeeth. Um, you can, uh, and as I just mentioned, catch up on back episodes of you, of I do movies badly on battleship pretension.com or on I do movies badly.podbean.com. So, um, that is it. Uh, like I said, this is going to be, um, there's going to be a bit of a, a break for two weeks while I go on vacation, but when I'll be back, I'll be talking to David Bax about advanced Mumblecore, and hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 